I'm really excited. Um, I, I performed a wedding uh, yesterday, and, and when I was planning ahead for the fall, I, I was like, I would really like to not preach. Um, and so I saved like one of the best parables for this Sunday and gave it to Matt Tintera. Um, and so Matt's going to come up and, and uh, kind of unpack the parable of the sower and the seed. And, and then some of the commentaries that, that I've, I've seen, they've called this parable like Jesus's quintessential parable. So that's not any pressure, Matt. Um, but, but I was also really excited um, to, to give Matt. Matt is a second year divinity student at Duke. And, um, and has been involved at Oak Church from pretty close to the start. Matt lives a, a couple blocks away. And, um, and specifically for this parable, Matt is currently doing an academic year field ed um, up in Cedar Grove at Anathoth Community Garden and Farm. Um, and this is, a, this is like church-based agriculture, and they're definitely pioneers um, at doing that and figuring that out and how to... How to um, minister in their community through um, food, through um, taking care of the land and, and worshiping God that way. So I'm really excited to see um, how implicitly or explicitly some of those things that Matt um, is immersed in and is learning um, kind of make its way into this sermon. So I'm going to invite Jonathan Gross to come up and read this passage from Mark 4, 1 through 20. He began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this, behold, the sower went out to sow, and he was sowing some seed, and as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came up and ate it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he, he was saying, He who hears... He who ears to hear, let him hear. As soon as he was alone, his followers along with the twelve began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you who has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that he, while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand. Otherwise they might return and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the world. These are the ones who are beside the road where this word is sown. And when they hear immediately, Satan comes up and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones who seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word. But the words of the world and the deceitfulness of the riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it 
and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. Morning. I don't know if, oh, there we go, something like that. Um, yeah, like Chris said, I'm Matt, and I'm a second year at the Div School, and I'm, I've been going here, and I'm really excited to get to stand on this side of things and share this space with y'all today. Um, most, of, most of the advice that you get about preaching can kind of boil down to know your context, know um, your audience, know you, what they're going through, know your congregation and what's going on in their lives, and try to speak, um, hear a word from the Lord to speak to them in that. Um, and that's what I've been praying as I've been preparing this today. Um, but when you wake up on Sunday morning and you walk down to the church, um, you really don't know what you're walking into. And um, on a morning like this morning with what happened just across the street, um, I don't know, I pray that the Lord's word somehow speaks to us um, in that today. Um, like Chris said, I, I'm working at Anatoth, which is a community garden um, this, this school year. And part of the story behind Anatoth is... Um, that the, the land was donated after um, a murder that happened. Someone who runs a, ran a bait-and-tackle store was killed in his store. Um, and the land was donated as sort of a way to create a space of healing for the community, a place where the community can come and work together and work through some of the um, divisive racial issues and some of the violence that is going on in the community. So maybe part of what the Lord is saying to us today is um, that Oak Church can be a, a garden, both literally outside and, and metaphorically, where Lakewood can kind of plant its hands down together um, and work the soil. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and Redeemer. Amen. So, like I just said, since the middle of September, I've been spending my Tuesdays and Saturdays out in Cedar Grove, essentially playing in the dirt. Um, my internship is um, out at this small organic farm called Anatoth Community Garden and Farm, where I help plant and harvest crops for the CSA they run there. But like I said, this mostly just looks like me playing around in the dirt, uh, digging up sweet potatoes, planting garlic, tearing up old summer beds and planting cover crops to replenish the nutrients in the soil. I'm basically a kid in a glorified sandbox, except there's an important difference between this sandbox and that of my childhood, and it's this. It's, this one is not simply filled with sand, with lifeless dirt. It's filled with soil. Those of you who farm or garden yourselves or who have helped garden out here at Oak Church know just what I'm talking about. There's a world of difference between the dry and pallid sand that covers a beach or a desert and the moist, dark soil of a garden bed. It's not that the sand doesn't have a beauty of its own. Rather, it's that the soil contains something of immeasurable worth, that is, the potential to produce new life. Fred Bonson, who was actually a previous director at Anatoth and ran the garden some years back, um, captures this idea really well in his book, Soil and Sacrament. He writes, There is an entire ecosystem in a handful of soil. 
bacteria, fungi, protozoa, nematodes, earthworms. Through their breeding and dying, such, such creatures vivify the world. Soil is not dirt. It is a living organism, or rather a collection of organisms, and it must be fed. Soil both craves life and wants to produce more life, even a hundredfold. And Bonson goes on to tell a quick story that I think will help us connect back to the text that we're looking at today. He writes, the true profundity of our soil at Anatoth was difficult to gauge. One day I slid my hand into, the green, into one of the greenhouse beds. I pushed down gently and kept pushing until my arm vanished and my shoulder touched the soil's surface. It had seemed then as if I could keep burrowing downward until my entire body was swallowed by the warm, dark earth. Soil, he writes, is a portal to another world. This closing remark by Bonson, um, that soil can act as a doorway into a fuller vision of life, serves, I think, as a good metaphor to help us get at one layer of meaning in this parable from Mark 4. I sort of suspect that this text um, is one that feels almost irritatingly familiar to most of us in the room today. Along with the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son, it's probably one of Jesus' most well-known parables, and its seeming simplicity might make us feel as if it should be relegated to a children's Sunday school room and not the sanctuary. My hope, however, is that we will begin to see it with new eyes today, and that with this refocused vision, all the other parables will begin to take on a more luminous light as well. You see, like the soil from Bonson's story, the soil in this parable is also meant to be a portal to another world, the world of the kingdom of God. So the, the place to go in order to begin to see what I'm talking about, um, I think, is in verse 13. But just before this point in the text, Mark records that the disciples had come to Jesus and they were questioning him about his parables. And in Matthew's account of this parable, um, we see that what they had specifically been questioning him about was why he continually spoke to the crowds in parables. And the answer that they receive is both perplexing and haunting. Um, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, but those who are outside get everything in parables so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. If I'm being perfectly honest, I have almost no idea what to do with this statement by Jesus. If we take his words here at face value, it would seem that he is telling his disciples that he speaks in parables specifically in order to keep the crowd from understanding um, so that they will not be able to repent and be saved. That's a difficult pill to swallow and maybe even an impossible one. You could potentially get around this stumbling block by pointing out that Jesus is quoting here from Isaiah 6 and is therefore connecting his ministry to that of Isaiah's as a prophet who came to a people of deaf ears and to preach a message that would ultimately be rejected by the majority of the nation. But I'm still not sure that this solves the problem of Jesus' intentions in preaching in parables, nor am I convinced that it's supposed to. 
I think that a better approach to the dilemma is to keep on reading into verse 13, in which Jesus, as he is so inclined to do, responds to the disciples' question with a question of his own. Do you not understand this parable, he asks? How then will you understand all the parables? If I'm reading Jesus correctly here, um, what he is saying is essentially this. If you don't get what I'm telling you through this parable, then you will fundamentally miss the point of all the other parables I have told and will continue to tell throughout my ministry. In short, this parable is the key to understanding Jesus' theology of parables. I recognize that this is a fairly substantial claim, so let's spend some time unpacking it or unearthing the various layers of its soil by way of the text. So following these questions, Jesus dives into an explanation of the parable of the sower. And the first connection he draws is this. The sower sows the word. That is, the seed in this parable is a symbol for the word. It is the message spoken by God to the world about the kingdom. And I find this to be an interesting and fruitful comparison for a couple of reasons. First, on the face of it, there's nothing quite so simple and plain-looking as a seed. If you remember from when Chris spoke on the parable of the mustard seed, um, and you don't have to do too much work to imagine this because they're right out there, um, but the thing that I remember thinking to myself about these seeds is how utterly unassuming each little seed was. They may not actually be the smallest seeds in the plant kingdom, but they would hardly catch your eye if you walked by a few of them strewn across the path that you were walking on. Just a few small, dark circles, barely the size of the head of a pin. And so it is oftentimes with Jesus' parables. Upon first hearing or reading these pithy little stories, they can almost seem mundane or even trivial. A woman loses a coin and spends the entire day looking for it. When she finds it, she rejoices with all her neighbors. A man finds a costly treasure in a field and then sells all he has to buy the field and gain the treasure. A small seed is planted and grows into a beautiful tree. Aside from a little buried treasure, none of these stories is particularly flashy. They're short, simple, and to the point. That is, unless you allow them to sink deep within the soil of your imagination and begin to take root there. It's only then that something extraordinary begins to take place. What was once an insignificant little speck breaks open and gives birth to a living, breathing organism. The sparkle of a coin and its stamped image of the emperor begins to remind you of the beauty of each human soul as it bears the image of its divine creator. A rustic wooden box full of costly metals suddenly calls to mind the first time you cracked open your grandmother's worn leather Bible and discovered the colorful notes and thoughts of a generation whose wisdom is worth the sacrifice of your own prideful self-knowledge. And a towering tree in the middle of a field stretches you uncomfortably between the two clashing images of a condemned criminal hung bloody on a cross and the sweet taste of new and unending life plucked from the branches of a tree that shades a heavenly city. You see, a seed symbolizes the word of God 
not just in its simplicity, but in its surprising capacity to carry within itself the potential for abundant life. And this isn't something that you would gather necessarily gather by simply looking at either the seed or the plant on their own, or even by comparing them side by side. You almost have to witness the process of a seed germinating, first into a little seedling, and then developing its leaves and flowers, and finally bearing fruit, in order to truly believe that the one comes from the other. And so it is with God's message about the kingdom. I think if God were to show us the kingdom in its full now, I don't think that we'd even be able to comprehend it. It would look so strange, so foreign to our uncultivated imaginations that we would miss it entirely, or even worse, reject it as being foolish and grotesque. It would appear to us as a tree so monstrous that we'd feel an anxious need to chop it down before it crushed us under the weight of its unruly branches. So instead, God mercifully presents us with a portion fit for our feeble minds, the simple parable. Each parable is a story the size and potency of a mustard seed, one that is at once manageable enough to find a comfortable space in our imagination and yet is also charged with the full electrifying power of the kingdom of God. Here, too, I think we can see the sheer genius of the Incarnation. For how could God possibly meet sinful humanity in the fullness of God's glory? We would be utterly ruined. Like the prophet Isaiah in his vision of the Lord, we would say, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So what does God do but appear to us in the smallest, most unassuming form, that of a helpless infant, the tiny seed of humanity, but brimming with the full glory of its infinite creator? And like the seed, Christ is crushed. He's crushed so that new life might spring up from his broken body and provide the world with the fruit of God's divine love. To circle back around then um, to the question we raised earlier concerning Jesus' intentions in teaching through parables, I think we might find ourselves with a slightly different picture than that of a vindictive instructor purposefully uh, withholding the truth from those who need it. Jesus does not teach the crowd in parables in order to hide the truth about the kingdom from them, but because he knows that the human imagination can only lay hold of the kingdom in its simplest form, albeit a form so small that hearing it, one might not initially understand its significance, and seeing it, one might fail to perceive its its relation to the bigger picture of the kingdom. Again, I don't think that this fully solves all the tensions felt in Jesus' words here. In fact, I think that passages such as this one are meant to be wrestled with over and over again. Their limbs must be shaken until they drop the seeds that will bear fruit in our lives. For this is the nature of God's word. Like Jacob with the angel, one must wrestle with it in order to be blessed by it. So this brings me to the second half of Jesus' theology of parables. Not only do the parables package the word of God in a seed-like form that is both simple 
and potent, ready to bring forth sustenance and life. But the human imagination must be like the soil in which that must be the soil in which that seed is sown and takes root. It's not a given, though, that we will always be fertile beds for this generative process. Um, the theologian James Cone, who's known for his work on issues of race and theology, uh, writes this in his book titled The Cross and the Lynching Tree. One has to have a powerful religious imagination to see redemption in the cross, to discover life in death and hope in tragedy. In other words, religious imaginations that are cluttered with lifeless things will not be hospitable ground for the seeds of the kingdom. And this is the very thing that Jesus is getting at in the final verses of his explanation of this parable. He says, These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word immediately receive it with joy, and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. We must then, empowered by God's spirit, clear out the rocks and thorns that suffocate, suffocate our ability to think and act Christianly. Things like racial prejudice and the love of money and power or violence. And we must till the soil of our hearts and minds with humility and love so that we might receive the seeds of the kingdom like those on whom seed was sown on good soil, who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. The tilling and the preparing of the soil is just as much a part of the process as is the actual planting and the growing of the seed. In other words, the practical work of growing in holiness is an essential aspect of growing in our understanding of God's word and the vision of the kingdom that it produces. And as, and as is true of the natural process, this supernatural process is also like a cycle. A seed grows into a plant, the plant brings forth fruit, which carries more seeds, and so on the process goes. So too, as holiness is essential for a deeper understanding of God's word, the fruit that meditating on God's word and knowing it more intimately brings is holiness. This is the cycle of our spiritual life, the ongoing relationship between God's gracious giving and our humble receptivity. And at the center of all this, we find a crucified and risen Christ, one who meets us as the word in a parable, and, blood, and body and blood in a piece of bread and a sip of wine, and as a seed of hope and truth in the soil of our imaginations. I want to close uh, with a sonnet written by a poet named Malcolm Geith, who he came last year um, and read some of his work in, um, at Duke, and um, I think he has a really powerful vision of what 
this parable is about, and I think he's able to encapsulate it in um, just 14 short lines, which is much better than I was able to do. Um, so I'm going to read this for you. It's titled, Good Ground. I love your simple story of the sower, with all its close attention to the soil, its movement from the knowledge to the knower, its take on the tenacity of toil. I feel the fall of, the, of seed a sower scatters, so equally available to all. Your story takes me straight to all that matters, yet understands the reasons why I fall. Oh, deepen me where I am thin and shallow, uproot in me the thistle and the thorn. Keep far from me that swiftly snatching shadow that seizes on your seed to mock and scorn. Oh, break me open, Jesus, set me free. Then find and keep your own good ground in me. Pray with me. Lord, we come to you this morning um, like seeds, seeds who are broken, seeds who are looking for um, a place to be rooted and planted, uh, for security, for hope, for life, for food. Um, we're seeking, and we ask that you would provide. Lord, this neighborhood is seeking, um, and even in places where it does not know what it is looking for, I ask that you would meet the people here in your love and in your grace. Um, I pray that Oak Church would be a place in which people can feel safe. They can come and they can work together. They can share their labor. They can share a meal. They can share in your body and blood. Um, let this be a place of healing. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.